Well, thank you, Dave. Um, it is, boy, it's such a delight to be uh, back here and standing in this pulpit in this place uh, that uh, was so formative and wonderful and enriching uh, for me and Christy and, and uh, working with Paul and the whole cathedral staff here is where we were able to see what uh, Dave just said uh, about me and made me cry, uh, that, uh, that this message was personified by Paul Zoll and all that we've been given to do in Charlottesville has become is directly uh, a fruit from the root of our time here at, uh, in Birmingham. So thank you very much, Dave, for what you did, and for Gil for, for setting the table so beautifully, and Dave and your remarks pouring the wine. And I will say that I will not go on forever tonight because hunger, there's another kind of hunger for actual food and actual drink, and it's in there. And uh, it's Friday night, and you've come from lots of different places, and you're tired, and you can't concentrate very long and very well. And we have some clips that are funny, so it'll jolt you out of your stupor, uh, or you're thinking about Dreamland Barbecue, or whatever it is. And so I won't go on forever, but I do want to talk about tonight grace, rest, and the end of scorekeeping. I want to use as our sort of beginning salvo that quote from Robert Capon, which is, was on the tag for this conference. Uh, Grace cannot prevail until law is dead, until moralizing is out of the game, until our fatal love affair with the law is over, until finally and for good, our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. Grace, rest, and the end of scorekeeping. And I want to begin these talks on the end of scorekeeping by noting the obvious ironies of coming back to Birmingham to give talks on the end of scorekeeping. It is not lost on me that speaking at a conference here at the Advent on the end of scorekeeping is filled with all kinds of ways to keep score. How many people will attend? Is 200 enough? Will Mockingbird be received well? Will I be good enough? Interesting enough? Funny enough? Insightful enough? Will, will I let Dave Zoll down? I used to worry about letting Paul Zoll down. Now I don't want to let Dave down. In my mind, anyway, I seem to remember being fairly well liked here. Will I live up to former expectations? Will I let you down? What kind of score will you give me? And for those of you keeping a score, it was 10 years ago, uh, this very fall, that Christy and I uh, came to Birmingham. And even thinking about that sort of 10 year, and then we left seven years ago, thinking about that in, inter, interval gives rise to all kinds of occasions to keep score on myself. And you do the same thing when you return to a place or, you know, you, you go to a college reunion. You know, how do I look? You know, I haven't seen people in seven years since we left. You know, have I gained weight? Well, I still can wear the suit I bought here. You know, uh, what about my hair? You know, any thinner, any grayer? You know, but the real question is, how am I compared to you? You know, that's what we're all thinking about. What about my so-called career? You know, have I accomplished enough since I left this cathedral? Has Christ Church Charlottesville grown in the way that it was expected to under my leadership and the way I expected to. What do the numbers say? What is our average Sunday attendance? What is our annual budget? Are the pledges up? How do numbers compare to previous years at Christ Church? How do those numbers compare to other churches? 
It's the edge, as Gil says, always just at me. And again, all of you, of course, have your own arenas where the same questions attack you like lions in a Roman Colosseum. What about my family life? Well, I've got to keep score there. What will our Christmas card picture, which is what all score be keeping in family life boils down to, what will it look like this year? You know, maybe a picture of all of us riding together at a ranch in Jackson Hole that we go to. Oh, a high score on that one. Or maybe we could just post a YouTube video of my family, of me losing my temper and yelling at my children who are fighting about doing chores or going to church. be a low score. How about a newsy letter about Hillary, our oldest daughter, who's now in her second years at St. Andrews in Scotland studying theology high marks again. Haven't the walkers done well? Or perhaps any number of my journal entries in my moleskin begging God for mercy and understanding and patience because I feel like a failure as a father so much of the time. Such is the life of scorekeeping. And all of those scorekeeping ways, of course, all seem like a referendum on my worth, on my very self. You know, scorekeeping, as, as, as Capen said, is in fact a fatal love affair. And we always lose when we keep score. We always lose when we keep score. Sadly, that doesn't stop us from keeping score because we seem to be so certain that it actually matters and the only way to win in life is to get a higher score than the next person. And most of us keep score, as Dave said, and all the time in every imaginable arena. Most of our relationships, don't they, operate on an IOU, you owe me basis. Rare is the relationship that is not contractual. If you hurt my feelings, you owe me an apology. You know, he's your father, young man. You owe him some respect. She reached out last time, so I owe her a phone call. Rare, of course, is the marriage that doesn't on some level keep a ledger of wrong things said or right things done. You know, I got up with a baby last night. We went to your parents for Thanksgiving last year. You know, don't you owe me a girl's weekend? You know, I walked at work to the yard all morning, you know, before my tea time. You know, she's your mother. And these, these examples, of course, are still right up here, but I'm going down here. I mean, they don't even approach the territory of infidelity, bedroom sexual frigidness, or family money on your father's side. Scorekeeping. We were tortured as uh, young parents with Barney the dinosaur when Hillary was uh, young, the purple dinosaur with incredibly annoying, I love you, you love me. And then I started thinking about Barney as a scorekeeper, like the real Barney. And uh, I started thinking he might say something like, I owe you, you owe me. We're a scorekeeping family with a great big debt for the things I've done for you. Won't you say you owe me too? Thank you so much. 
Scorekeeping. Scorekeeping if you're in school, obviously your grades. Scorekeeping, uh, you know, in your, in your work life, your, your titles, uh, or whatever education you can get so you can get another title behind your name. Scorekeeping in your work, obviously your money, your promotions. Scorekeeping in your body, you know, the scales are scorekeepers, obviously. The number of runs that you've gotten in this week. You know, uh, yoga, everyone in Charlottesville, bar none, does yoga. And I thought hot yoga, you know, was enough. Hot yoga, I thought that was enough. That was the highest score one could get in the physical front, but not so. Now there is air yoga. It's a new type of yoga with movements done on this hammock-like apparatus. It is anti-gravity yoga that, quote, defies natural law to achieve a better body, mind, and spirit. Who knew? Air yoga. (laughs) Scorekeeping. The theological name for scorekeeping is justification by works. The theological name for scorekeeping is justification by works. It's the way of life governed by the law. It's the way of life. It's the way of living life as if life were a contest to be won. It's the way of living life as if life were a battle out of which one must emerge the victor. It is a way of life which sees life as an accusation against which one must justify oneself. It is the way of the old Adam and the way of the old Eve, and frankly put, it is the way of death. We always lose when we keep score. Justification by works is a closed circle. Why? Because you can never justify yourself enough. You must always keep striving. And guess what? You can fight the law, but the law will always win. I fought the law, and the law won. There are two devastating but impregnable Inviolable facts of the law. First is this. It's inevitable and inescapable. And the second is, it will always win. Every time. This is why we always lose when we keep score. I was discussing the inevitability, uh, yet the futility a scorekeeping with eight undergraduate guys in my Bible study this past Monday morning, a Bible study that we hold in one of the lawn rooms at UVA, which is a clear symbol of having achieved a high score. And these guys are fraternity guys, they're members of Zate and the Hall, and they are the top of the food chain in the Greek world at UVA, and yet these guys are also believers, aware at least on a semi-conscious level, that even those with the highest scores don't ultimately win, and though they come to our 5 p.m. service at Christ Church, where Dave Zoll so brilliantly works as our, as our grounds minister, they come to the service chiefly to look at sorority girls and be fed you know, by this home-cooked meal afterwards, I realize somewhere 
they've heard somebody say that the first will be last and the last will be first. And one of these guys was talking about sort of measuring up on the job market. When you're fourth year, the inevitable question is, well, what are you going to do next year? And it's what adults always say to these kids when they're at that age, and it's just a referendum on their souls, and it's a terrible thing to ask, actually, and we all ask it, and I do too. And uh, this guy was saying, talking to other, other fourth years about to go in and be graduate system, you know, when, when you talk about this sort of job market after graduation, he said, you can never win in those conversations. Because when you ask somebody what they're doing next year, if your job is better than theirs, you feel self-righteous. And if your job is worse, you feel jealous. There's no middle ground. We always lose when we keep score. And tonight, uh, I want to look at, with the, in a very sort of mockingbird way, with the intersection of, of media and life and these truths, which uh, we hold to be self-evident from the scripture and our own experience, want to look uh, through the media at the way scorekeeping plays out in life, in your life, in my life. And then first I want to look at family life, and we'll see uh, a, a clip from the show Modern Family. Then we're going to look at uh, our vocational life, and we'll see a clip from Seinfeld. And then we'll sort of look at our life life. And uh, I'll read something from The Onion related to Kanye West. We're sort of onion bird or mocking onion or something like this around here. But um, I want to, to look at first family life. But in each of those instances, what I want you to understand and for me to understand is that we always lose when we keep score. And uh, this first scene from Modern Family, which we're about to roll right now, uh, has to do with Claire... The, the wife, the mother, needing to be right, proving to be right, having to prove herself right. So, uh, roll them. So a grasshopper came into a bar and... Uh, <laughs> This morning, uh, I'm extremely glad to be here in and, and a very kind of um, uh, direct way because this morning I went with my daughter, Glenn, who's, who hasn't been here since seven years ago, and she's spending the weekend with me. And we got up early and went to the Charlottesville airport, and I booked an 8 o'clock flight out of Charlottesville airport, and I got there, and uh, we brightened early. It was 7 o'clock. We're already plenty of time to catch our flight. And uh, nobody was there, and I thought, this is really interesting. I don't remember an 8 o'clock flight, but it was right there. And I looked at my computer. Yep, it's an 8 o'clock flight. And the person behind the desk said, yeah, it's 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. You booked an 8 p.m. flight. <laughs> it was not funny then. And uh, fortunately, off we went to Richmond, and here we are. Um, we ready? Okay. The, oh, could you grab me an extra virgin? I think one's enough for the sacrifice. Olive oil. Oh, that's funny. Oh, funnier than your freestyle Girl, you're crazy. I'm mad fun to shop with. Got in between two hallway slices. Pastrami and Swiss are my only vices. Sweetie, my shoe. Come on. Jeez. Hello. Hi. Oh, roadblock. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, 
calling me. Are you okay? Actually, not okay. Not okay. Honey, did you pull from the bottom again? One more year. When I leave for college. Is it one more year or when you leave for college? Because those happen to be two different things. So I hear this little voice coming from the cans, and it's like, Help! I fell in the peaches! <laughs> Mom! Hilarious. So hilarious. I'm like, Claire? You might want to tell them that it was you who pushed me into the peaches in the first place. This again. I wasn't even near you. Yes, you were. You knocked me with the cart. It was completely your fault. Well, let's just agree to disagree. No, I, I disagree to disagree. Then you agree. No, no, I don't, because I'm right. Okay, Claire, you're right. As usual. No, I am right. Like always. Stop it. When I am wrong, I admit it. Which is never. Fine. Fine. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> My plan's been in motion for three weeks. Honey, this is a terrible idea. You're going to hate it up there. Mom, stay out of this. Yeah, we all have our own rooms now. Everybody wins. But don't get too comfortable in there, girls. Luke, it's cold and it's scary up there. You're going to be back in your own room by tomorrow night. I don't know, Claire. It's got a lot of potential. This is a lot nicer than the attic I lived in when we met. One night, if that. Trust me on this. Oh, yes, because you are always right. Sweetheart, I would love to be wrong. I just don't live with the right people for that. Better go, kids. Not gonna budge. Kept me up all night with Phil, you did push me. Your word against mine. This is one of those things we'll just never know. Like what really happened to the Titanic. Huh. It hit an iceberg. Maybe. Mm, there's no maybe. Oh, you're right, Claire. Now again. Surprise, surprise. Okay, I will see you over at Uncle Mitchell's. I'm gonna skip this meeting of the Pylon Claire Club. Guess I pushed her into that pile too. <laughs> okay, everybody, showtime. Oh my gosh, it's us at the market. Uh huh. Yeah, it's security you... camera footage. I don't understand. What are we watching? I hate the Godfather. I can tell you. That. Okay, look, I fell yesterday at the market, and Phil and I have been having a little disagreement as to what happened. Just watch. Okay, right here. I stopped to fix my shoe, and then Phil, right there. Okay, he makes way for this very attractive woman, whom he conveniently leaves out of his retelling of the story. Now, right here, Phil backs up, pushes his butt into the cart, pushes me into the can. Do you see that? It's all his. You went to all that trouble just to prove you were right? It really wasn't that much trouble. I just went to the store, found your friend Jordan, the bag boy who got me the manager. He gave me the address of the off-site security office. I filled out some paperwork, Sally faxed it to corporate. Three minutes later, I'm buying a pack of DVDs and burning a copy. Cake. It's like a sickness. What? None of you believe me, so I got proof. You shall be sucking it right now. Hey, please, stop with the dog and it's glare, the chill, the... Like a fanny pack. Stop blaming each other. No kid wants a sibling. I mean, Claire hated you so much she stuck you in a dryer when you were two. You put me in the dryer? I did, but it wasn't because I hated you. So my friend Marcy said that it wouldn't run with a kid inside it, and I knew it would. That's right. Good job. 
that's been going on since you were five. Oh my God, it is a sickness. Yeah. What would make me have that need at such a young... How long was I in that dryer? Because I... <laughs> okay. Lights. So... We always lose when we keep score because even when we're right, we're wrong. Even when we're right, we're wrong because our need to be right always runs and tramples over the people that we love. Even when you're right, you're wrong. We always lose when we keep score. And um, all right, this next one then is from Seinfeld and just a little bit of uh, background. So Jerry has a puffy shirt. Uh, on in this episode, and that's kind of a minor plot of it. Uh, Kramer's girlfriend is a low talker, a low talker, and you can't really hear the low talker. And so the low talker talks, and Jerry unwittingly agrees to wear her designer shirt on a television show, so that's why Jerry has the puffy uh, shirt on. But um, what we see vocationally is this uh, whole um, episode revolves around George Costanza, who is the perpetual jobless loser, who's in fact been given perhaps a new vocation. So we are going to roll this. Look at him. He sees us. Doesn't want to come off. I need some air. Nice. 
I never noticed this before? They're smooth, creamy, delicate, yet masculine. <laughs> All right. I gotta get going. I'll admit That's all I can find. Would you mind getting the door? Yeah. Thank you very much. his hands to. I mentioned his hands to plenty of people. You never mentioned it to me. Hand me an emery board. I always talk about your hands, how they're so soft and milky white. No, you never said milky white. I said milky white. Scissor. Kick me, 
I had a few good years. How could you forget to turn off an iron? I was excited because Jerry was putting on the puppy shed. My whole life is ruined because of the puppy shed. It didn't do me any good either. That benefit was the worst show I ever did. Some of those heckles were really uncalled for. A vast ye matey? What the hell does that mean? 20 degrees over the starboard side. It's a Spanish galleon. There's no comeback for that. Well, it got me fired from the benefit committee. All right. Puffy shirt. Um, so, you know, not to comment on Seinfeld because it needs no comment, but just one obvious thing that, you know, what, what is given to us is a gift in terms of what we might be given to do in life. Immediately we begin keeping score and begin to clutch at the thing, think it's our own. And uh, the minute that we clutch at the thing, as uh, happened to George, you know, we, we, he was burned in the iron. It was taken away. And so, you know, you never know when what you are doing will be taken away. We all go the way of the iron eventually, and you never know when what's been given to you will be taken away from you just like that. We always lose when we keep score. And then uh, the kind of inner scorekeeping that uh, Dave Zoll was talking about earlier, this this yearning to justify ourselves, this seeing life as a, as a contest to be won, and this desire to have our identity founded in something from the outside which comes, these scores that come from the outside once we have achieved a certain plateau or a certain goal, then we think that somehow that goal is going to fill us up inside. And if I just, you know, get enough approval, if I get a high enough score in life, I will be justified and I will be fulfilled in life. If I just score high enough, then I will be enough. If I just score high enough, then I will be enough. And uh, there we go to the onion and we'll put Kanye West uh, up there on the screen. And we can't quite see him. We can maybe dim like we did before. Uh, okay, that's good. There he is. There's Kanye. And uh, the onion says, with this usual piercing insight into our human condition, spoofing the idea behind scorekeeping through justification by works in this recent article. Following the widespread acclaim and media adulation over his latest album, multi-million dollar selling recording artist Kanye West announced Wednesday that he had finally received the exact amount of approval he needed to attain and had therefore retired from the entertainment industry to live on a small farm in Iowa. Though known for his outsized ego and grandstanding lyrics, West said, all of that is over now telling reporters outside his remote two-bedroom farmhouse that after years of non-stop public attention, he was now completely secure in his sense of self and required no further affirmation. <laughs> My goal all along was to be praised and talked about until I reached a level of total contentment with who I am and where I belong in the world. And on Friday night of last week, I reached that level. <laughs> said West, standing outside the screen door of his home in a pair of khaki slacks and a plain gray work shirt. I finally feel satisfied and whole as a human being, which means I can stop being a famous pop star now. We always lose when we keep score. 
And this is what I want to say about praise and condemnation are the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. Praise and condemnation are just two sides of the same coin. Because the minute we see our life in a scorekeeping grid, we have already lost. Even if we get the highest score possible, you see, we've lost because we're on that cycle, on that grid. We've got that coin burning us. The, the, the instant that we entertain an idea of deservedness, either good or bad, the minute that we entertain the idea of deservedness, we've lost. And so even if we're as good as anybody can possibly be, if we've attained all the praise that we so-called need, we've lost. Jesus says those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. The, the sword is scorekeeping. And those who live by the law will in fact die by the law. And that leads me to the final area of scorekeeping that I want to discuss this evening and then we get to go eat. And that's our life with God. Our life with God. Our fatal love affair with the law forces us to see God as the ultimate scorekeeper. And so when it comes to scorekeeping with God, what I want to say is fine. Fine. Let's try to keep score with God. I mean, that's the point of the law, after all. And so how do we do with God? Let's try this one on for size. Do not worry about tomorrow. How are you doing with that? Be anxious for nothing. How's that going for you? At night. Or how about this one? Consider others better than yourselves. That would be your actual neighbor, your mother-in-law, anybody else other than you. How's it going with that one? Or how about even the most basic scorekeeping command, love your neighbor as yourself. How's your score? I mean, I haven't even talked about lust and anger. These are just sort of the basic human experiences of life. Don't worry. How's your score going with that? And don't forget, by the way, that what you're going to need in terms of a score when you go toe-to-toe with God, be perfect, just as your Heavenly Father is perfect. How's your score? Well, the law keeps score. That's what the law does. That's why we have the law. The law keeps score. So it's a very good thing for us, then, that as Paul says in Romans, Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Because if we keep score with God, there will not be righteousness waiting for us at the end of that game. But you see, in Christ, through faith, trust, we we don't have to worry about the end of the game. Because Christ, you see, has delivered us beyond deserving. Christ has delivered us out of the deserving grid altogether. God has said, game over. Game over. No one's playing. No one is playing that scorekeeping game anymore. Game over. Christ is the end of the law. 
God says, I have gone out of the scorekeeping business once and for all. Game over. More about this in tomorrow's talk called Game Over, the Foolish Wisdom of God's Grace. God's grace. As Capon says, grace is wildly irreligious stuff. It's more than enough to get God kicked out of the God union that theologians have formed to keep him on his divine toes so he won't let the riffraff off scot-free. Sensible people, of course, should need only about 30 seconds of careful thought to realize that getting off scot-free is the only way any of us is going to get off at all. But if all we can think of is God as an eternal bookkeeper putting down black marks against sinners, or God as the celestial mother-in-law, I love mine, the celestial mother-in-law giving a crystal vase as a present and then inspecting it for chips every time she comes for a visit... Well, any serious doctrine of grace is going to scare the rockers right off our little theological hobby horses. Again, more tomorrow about the foolish wisdom of God's grace. But for now, tonight, it is enough to know that grace a.k.a. the end of scorekeeping. Grace is our only hope in a world of scorekeeping. What does grace do? What does grace do? Grace puts away the ledgers on everybody, everywhere. What does Grace do? Grace puts those guns in the ground and she won't shoot them anymore. Grace gets out of the ring and takes off the gloves. Grace doesn't bury her head in the sand. Grace buries her whole body in the sand. Grace can't remember who's on first or what's on second. Grace doesn't get why anybody would figure out who's right or who's wrong. Grace thinks that everybody could be a hand model. Grace praises you and talks about you until you reach a level of contentment with who you are and where you belong in the world. Grace thinks khakis and a plain gray work shirt are just beautiful. Air yoga defies the law of gravity. Grace defies the gravity of the law. Catchy. And this is what we believe so deeply about Mockingbird, that Grace has a wicked sense of humor about things. She thinks, Grace does, that Scorekeeping is both pathetic and funny at the same time. The scorekeeper looks at the world and says, it's serious, 
but not hopeless. Grace looks at the world and says, it's hopeless, but it's not serious. Grace takes the blame and she covers the shame and she removes the stain. And Grace travels outside of karma. And when she travels outside of karma, she picks you up in her arms and she takes you with her. She takes you to a place, a place beyond deserving. Grace lets you rest. Grace is the end of scorekeeping. Grace says, once and forever, it is finished. Game over.